This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about just some of the many ways the Trump administration is systematically attacking the environment to pave the way for increased profits for the business interests who have the administration's ear. Clips today come from Democracy Now!, The Green News Report, The David Pakman Show, The Bradcast, The PBS NewsHour, and This Is Hell. The Trump administration has announced plans to gut the Endangered Species Act, ordering federal agencies to consider economic impacts before listing animals to be protected under the law. The newly proposed guidelines by the Interior Department would allow corporations involved in mining, drilling, or other forms of extraction to proceed with projects that would otherwise be prohibited. Republican President Richard Nixon signed the Endangered Species Act in 1973 to provide a framework to conserve and protect endangered and threatened species and their habitats. The Trump administration's proposed rules are among several recent efforts to weaken the Endangered Species Act. Earlier this month, the Congressional Western Caucus introduced a package of nine bills to, quote, modernize the ESA. In introducing the legislation, Republican Congressman Don Young of Alaska said, quote, the Endangered Species Act has been weaponized and misused by environmental groups for too long. Meanwhile, in the Senate, Wyoming Republican John Barrasso, chairman of the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works, also introduced a draft bill to amend the act. This is Barrasso speaking at a hearing last week. Congress last reauthorized the Endangered Species Act with amendments of substance in 1988, 30 years ago. Even the U.S. Constitution has been amended more recently than the Endangered Species Act. Stakeholders are making it clear that the Endangered Species Act can be improved. A major goal of the Endangered Species Act is the recovery of species to the point that protection under the statute is no longer necessary. Since the ESA was signed into law, only 54 out of 2,393 species listed in the U.S. and foreign countries have been delisted because they have recovered. That's less than 3%. Now, as a doctor, if I admit 100 patients to the hospital and only three recover enough under my treatment to be discharged, Governor, I would deserve to lose my medical license with numbers like that. House Democrats, along with conservationists, managed to get excluded from Congress's annual defense spending bill, policies that would restrict Endangered Species Act protections for certain animals. For more, we're joined by Karen Suckling. He is executive director, founder of the Center for Biological Diversity, the group that has sued the Trump administration 81 times over the past year and a half. Karen, welcome to Democracy Now! Uh, talk about what is happening to the Endangered Species Act 45 years after um, it, was, uh, it was passed and President Nixon signed off on it. Yeah, the Trump administration's proposal to gut the Endangered Species Act is the most comprehensive, devastating attempt to destroy this law we've seen in this entire time. And this is after Reagan and after the Bushes. It's even worse than that. It's quite extraordinary. 
Well, and specifically, how would uh, the, uh, the, the weakening or gutting of the act work if it went through? Well, it will strip protection entirely for about 60 percent of all the species on the list. And these are the species that are listed as threatened rather than endangered. Currently, they get essentially the same protection as endangered species. Under the Trump proposal, they would get no protection at all. You could continue to kill them. You could continue to destroy their habitat as if they were simply not protected. And how would this issue of uh, taking into account economic impacts work? Yeah, this is really disastrous. The Endangered Species Act is incredibly successful because it requires that all decisions be made solely on the best available science. No politics, no economic concerns. So the Trump administration now wants to say, when deciding whether a species is endangered, a scientific question, you're going to have to take into account economic impacts. Well, economic Activity, mining, logging, grazing is the cause of endangerment. And this is the Endangered Species Act, not the Endangered Mining Industry Act. So it really turns the priority of this very successful law entirely upside down. I want to turn to Richard Nixon speaking in 1970 when he outlined a sweeping plan to protect the environment. Three years later, he signed the Endangered Species Act. The great question of the 70s is, shall we surrender to our surroundings or shall we make our peace with nature and begin to make reparations for the damage we have done to our air, to our land and to our water? So that's Richard Nixon. Uh, speaking uh, back in the 1970s, I want to go back to Republican Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming, speaking at a hearing for a draft bill to amend the Endangered Species Act. The discussion draft elevates the role of states in partnering with the federal government to implement the Endangered Species Act. It affords states the opportunity to lead wildlife conservation efforts including through the establishment of recovery teams for listed species and developing and implementing recovery plans. It provides for increased regulatory certainty, so stakeholders are incentivized to enter into voluntary conservation and recovery activities. It increases transparency. It codifies a system for prioritizing species listing petitions, so limited resources flow to the species most in need. Here on Suckling, if you can respond to what Republican Senator John Barroso of Wyoming was saying. Yeah, this is really extraordinary, because to get on to the endangered species list, there first has to be a finding that state plans have not worked, that state plans have caused the species to be imperiled. And so now Barroso wants to have the law say, oh, well, let's put the states whose plans failed in charge of conserving the species, how can that make any sense at all? He wants to do that because he knows the states don't have the money, the infrastructure, and in places like Idaho, Utah, Alaska, they don't have the desire to protect these species. It's the reason they're endangered in the first place, right? We don't turn over implementation of our laws 
to criminals who've just been found guilty of breaking the law. The state can be a partner of the federal government. The federal government needs to set the standards, provide the funds to get the job done that the states fail to do. And Karen Suckling, why do you uh, what's your sense of why the Trump administration is making this uh, such a priority? I mean, President Trump is not exactly known as a as a, a guy who has a lot of concern about what's going on with nature or with uh, the uh, open spaces of America. He's a real estate developer. So uh, why do you think he has uh, moved so aggressively in on this front? Well, he's being strongly influenced uh, by right-wing Republican congressmen, but especially those from the Western states, where so much logging, mining, grazing, oil drilling, coal mining is taking place on public lands. And there's this right-wing agenda to allow our public lands to be turned over to industry groups. And these folks, particularly out of Utah, have Trump's ear, and he's doing essentially whatever they want to happen. Can you talk about, Kieran, what animals have been saved by the Endangered Species Act? Oh, you know, there are just hundreds uh, of the 1,600 species on the domestic list. About 85 percent of them have improved in their population size since going on the list. So, for example, the bald eagle, when it was first put on the endangered species list, there were just a couple hundred of them. And by the time they were recovered, there were over 8,000. Uh, other species that have been helped are the wolverine up in the northern states. The grizzly bear has recovered tremendously from on the verge of extinction to many hundreds of them. Um, on the east coast, we've got the Atlantic sturgeon off the coast of New York or down in Florida, we've got the manatee, another incredible success story, green sea turtles on the Texas coast. Really, in every single state in the country, endangered species are thriving because of the work of the federal government, because of the very protections the Trump administration and Brazos want to kill. And uh, with We've talked about what President Trump is directly trying to do. What is Barrasso in Congress? What are these efforts to amend or modernize the act about? Yeah, so congressional Republicans have introduced over 60 bills in the last two years to gut the Endangered Species Act. And they know what they're doing. So these bills go right at the key decision junctures in the act— uh, that protect species and in doing so slow down some industries. And so they want to make it harder to put a species onto the endangered species list at all. Because if you stop that key moment, none of the other things flow from it. They want to allow protected habitat areas to be destroyed, even though they were set up simply to save the species. They want to change the people who create recovery plans for the species, the blueprint of what actions are needed, so that the states and industry groups dominate those plants. They want to make it so that greenhouse gas emissions and global warming cannot be addressed at all, even though they're driving almost all the species on the list extinct. 
They want to create loopholes so that oil companies, mining companies, logging companies can continue to implement destructive plans, even though those plans have been specifically found to be driving species extinct. Not surprising for Californians, but NOAA announced that July 2018 in California was officially the hottest month ever recorded in the state. That sustained record heat has made firefighting extremely difficult for those ongoing 16 major fires burning in the state. Smoke from those fires extends as far as New York City. California fire officials and forestry experts, firefighters and scientists all say that longer and hotter summers driven by climate change are a primary factor in worsening Western wildfires. But the Trump administration is denying the role of climate change and instead is using the fires as pretext for a full court press to push major policy changes that benefit politically powerful agriculture and logging industries. Hate to let any good catastrophe go to waste. Yep, although the California firefighting agency Cal Fire has repeatedly insisted there is no shortage of water for firefighting, Trump Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross last week directed federal fishery managers to waive endangered species rules for rivers. That, as L.A. Times columnist Michael Hiltzik explained in a recent broadcast, is actually a transparent cover to undermine the Endangered Species Act and justify diverting more water to corporate agribusiness operations in the Central Valley. So the real subtext here is, once again, an effort to serve the growers. And the whole point of having an Endangered Species Act is to make sure that they survive despite all of these economic interests that are lined up to kill them off. And then in a visit to California neighborhoods that were devastated by wildfire on Sunday, Trump Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke entirely dismissed climate change as a factor. It doesn't matter whether you believe or don't believe in climate change. Actually, yes, it does matter whether you believe or don't believe in climate change. It doesn't matter whether you believe or don't believe in climate change. What is important is we manage our forests. Now that is a euphemism for commercial logging, which Zinke made clear when he went even further in an interview with right-wing outlet Breitbart News. In a dangerous escalation of rhetoric, Zinke falsely blamed environmental groups for the wildfires. We have been held hostage by these environmental terrorist groups that have not allowed public access, that refuse to allow harvest of timber. Environmental terrorists? Really? That's what he said. Now, actual forestry scientists say the exact opposite, that forest management is actually far more complex, climate change can't be ignored, and what's actually needed is more funding for comprehensive techniques like controlled burns, not more logging. And that requires more funding from the federal government. So if we just listen to everything that the Trump administration says and understand it to mean the opposite, then we'd be in pretty good shape. Then we'd be in line with what scientists say.
these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. Let's talk about the environment and let's talk about asbestos. I'm guessing most people in the audience have heard of asbestos, which is a set of minerals that takes the form usually of fibrous crystals. And they've been around for a long time, thousands of years. Well, they've been around longer than that because they are just minerals, but they've been uh, used by humans for thousands of years in some form. But really, it's been the, since the late 1800s that asbestos started being using for building. And because asbestos absorbed sound and is strong and resists fire and heat and electricity, it was used increasingly for different construction purposes, as electrical insulation and in many other ways. Unfortunately, we eventually learned that asbestos is hugely hazardous to human health. It's a carcinogen. It causes cancer. It's really, really bad stuff, and it was eventually banned in many countries. If you inhale it, you can get lung cancer, mesothelioma, other conditions. It has been a massive undertaking in the United States to retrofit and remove asbestos from thousands upon thousands upon thousands of buildings all over the country. And the Trump EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, is now proposing allowing new uses for asbestos which will be allowed. So first of all, the story is being misreported in a lot of places. The headlines about this story have implied that asbestos would be allowed to use to be used in the same way that it's banned for. That's not true. The EPA is not trying to say you can use asbestos for electrical insulation and home construction again. That, that's not what they're doing. What the EPA is doing is they're picking up on an initiative from the Obama era to reform asbestos regulation, which could have actually been used to definitively and totally ban all uses of asbestos period. The Trump EPA is looking at picking up on that Obama idea and allowing some new uses of asbestos while simultaneously limiting the ability to study the risks that are caused by asbestos. Um, this is a disaster. And meanwhile, Trump is becoming the face of asbestos, literally asbestos sold by a Russian company has Trump's face on it now. And this is still, I, I, I don't even, why <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't have all the details uh, about why this is going on, but it's very, very strange times that we're living in. And Trump is actually bigly for asbestos. He tweeted back in 2012 that if we didn't remove the incredibly uh, uh, effective 
fire retardant asbestos in the World Trade Center that the World Trade Center Twin Towers might not have collapsed on 9-11. And of course, this is amazingly stupid because asbestos has killed way more people than the number that would have been saved on 9-11 by the towers not collapsing. And I don't even know what the hell is wrong yeah. with Donald Trump when it comes to this issue. I think Trump is speaking beyond his area of expertise. You may he's, be right he's not there. too into fire science. Yeah. This is where we are in 2018. We're debating whether new uses for asbestos should be allowed as per the Trump EPA completely redirecting a proposal from the Obama EPA, which could have once and for all said no asbestos period ever going forward. Meanwhile, Trump's tariffs on solar panels imported into the United States is already having a negative economic impact. Reuters reports that the tariffs have now forced American renewable energy companies to cancel or freeze their investments in more than two and a half billion dollars in major projects focused on large utility scale installations, sidelining thousands of construction jobs to boot. He's a fantastic deal maker, isn't he? Meanwhile, the Trump Environmental Protection Agency has announced it plans to undo a major part of the process that underpins all pollution standards. At the request of industry, the EPA will change how it approaches cost-benefit analysis, in which it weighs the cost of regulations to industry against the costs to Americans from illnesses caused by polluted air and water. Trump's EPA proposes to downplay the benefits to people from reducing pollution, like avoided public health care costs and lives saved from fewer cancers and diseases, Bottom line, the Trump EPA proposes to instead give greater weight to whether the cost to industry is really worth the benefit of not harming Americans. Mm. Many of Donald Trump's most corrupt cabinet members have now been forced out of their jobs after months and months of the administration attempting to protect them. The most recent exit, of course, was the wildly corrupt administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt, who was and is under more than a dozen official federal investigations at this point. Similarly corrupt, at least it seems to me, but receiving much less attention for reasons I'm not altogether clear about is Trump's Interior Department Secretary, Ryan Zinke. But a new information and a new story and a frankly massive foul up by the Department of Interior seems like it should help bring more scrutiny to the role that Zinke appears to be playing for commercial industry rather than for the public as the head of Interior. As you'll recall, in April of this year, President Donald Trump signed an executive order instructing Interior Department Secretary Ryan Zinke to review 27 national monuments established over 21 years, arguing that his predecessors had overstepped their authority in placing these large sites off-limits to commercial development. 
Since then, as we have reported here on the broadcast and, of course, in our Green News report, in an unprecedented move for any president, Trump has significantly reduced the size of two of Utah's largest national monuments. That would be Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante and has not ruled out altering, limiting, closing down still more public lands, allowing them to be used by commercial drilling, mining and ranching interests. But in their quest to shrink national monuments, Washington Post's Juliet Alperin was the first to report recently, senior Interior Department officials dismissed evidence that these public sites boosted tourism and spurred important archaeological discoveries, according to documents and depart, uh, the, that the department released last month, but then retracted and redacted a day later. The thousands of pages of email correspondence before they were retracted and redacted for public release chart how Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke and his aides tailored their survey of protected sites to emphasize the value of logging, ranching, and energy development that would be unlocked if they were not designated as national monuments. The new documents reveal that as Zinke conducted his four-month review, interior officials rejected material that would justify keeping protections in place and sought out evidence that could buttress the case for unraveling those protections. Many of those points, the points underscoring the need to keep public lands protected, were subsequently redacted for release under Freedom of Information Act requests, but only after the initial unredacted portions were made available accidentally to journalists. As the Salt Lake Tribune's Brian Maffley reports, the unredacted documents from Interior are very revealing, as are the redactions of specific portions of those documents. Maffley explains that Southern Utah's Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument has helped shield archaeological sites from vandalism, bolstered tourism, and spurred scientific discovery during the two decades since its designation, all without displacing cattle operations that have long used these public lands. That's what the Bureau of Land Management wrote in a report released in July. The next day, however, the agency released redacted documents and that downplayed those benefits and in doing so painted a picture that the monument might not be necessary to protect the resources within its nearly two million acre boundaries. Maffley quotes Aaron Weiss of the Center for Western Priorities, noting that, quote, you have the secretary being worried if you get rid of the National Monument protections in Grand Staircase Escalante, you will be leaving sacred Native American sites unprotected. And there is no way to replace those protections with the existing patchwork of laws. Weiss notes they were really clear about that, and then they tried to hide that from the American people in the document dump. Critics, of course, contend that the redactions were made because the material undermined Interior's rationale for shrinking monuments and offer proof that the outcome of Zinke's monument review was preordained with an eye toward mineral, uh, mineral extraction on land struck from the Grand Staircase and Bears Ears National Monuments. Acting on Zinke's recommendations last year, Donald Trump reduced the Grand Staircase by about half 
and Bears ears by some 85%, sparking a host of lawsuits from tribal, environmental, and scientific groups. Here to explain all of this, and uh, specifically, pardon the pun, the monumental screw-up by Ryan Zinke's Interior Department, um, what they were trying to hide and what this may mean for those lawsuits moving forward, not to mention Trump's other threatened closures and reductions of national monuments, is Aaron Weiss. He is the media director, blogger, and podcaster for the Center for Western Priorities, a nonpartisan conservation and advocacy organization promoting responsible policies and practices and working to ensure accountability at all levels to protect public land, water, and communities in the American West. By the way, before joining CWP, Aaron spent 14 years as a journalist and broadcast news producer, escaping that nightmare apparently just in time. (laughs) And he now also hosts hosts, uh, CWP's Go West Young podcast, focused on public lands and the outdoors. Aaron West, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Brad, thank you very much for having me. It is my pleasure to be here. Uh, Before we talk about some of the specifics in these documents that the Interior Department subsequently at least tried to redact, I know that you guys do a lot of FOIA requests at the Center for Western uh, Priorities, uh, and you watch these document dumps closely. What exactly happened here in, uh, as I called it, this uh, monumental screw-up by Interior? The short version is that someone just forgot to hit the right button at the end here. Uh, you, you put out FOIA responses using Adobe Acrobat and stuff that's supposed to get redacted. You use the redaction tool inside Acrobat. And once you're done, you hit the finally redact button and they forgot to do that here. So what they ended up posting was the full documents, not just unredacted, but you could see both the stuff they were intending to redact and all of the comments they left along the way about why they were redacting them. So it it almost would have been even better, you know, for them if they just posted the whole thing without the attempted redactions. But you actually got to see inside uh, the the redaction process. So it it was a a monumental, <laughs> pardon the pun, screw yep. up. Yeah, it, it sure was. The, um, the key parts that were redacted uh, from these particular documents we now know uh, regards Grand Staircase Escalante, which was designated a national monument by uh, Bill Clinton back in 1996 and detailed, among other things, Native American artifacts that were discovered at Grand Staircase. Uh, since then, they talk about hundreds of cultural sites being inventoried. That was uh, among the material that was redacted. What possible reason would they have for redacting that information? So the reason they gave what what showed up in the final redacted document, once they took it down and reposted it, they called that section uh, deliberative process. So under the Freedom of Information Act, Mm you are allowed to redact certain things, private information, phone numbers, email addresses, medical information, Mm -hmm. obviously. That's all proper. But then you also have this very broad exception. It's called the B-5 deliberative process exemption. And it's supposed to be so that officials can discuss policy options uh, candidly without mm-hmm. worrying, worrying about their internal deliberations going out to the public. Right. But oftentimes we see that B5 redaction being used as 
what's called the because I want to redaction. <laughs> right. And that's exactly what happened here is because they wanted to redact stuff that just didn't look good for them. They called that stuff deliberative, even though m many of these sections were not discussing policy options. They were just basic facts. And that's what you shouldn't be able to delete and call deliberative. Uh, you, instead, they just crossed out this whole section. Yeah, you, you shouldn't be able to. But of course, we wouldn't have even known about that had they uh, released the documents redacted in the first place. We would have presumed that the redactions was that deliberative stuff you're uh, you're, you're talking about. Uh, but in fact, uh, you know, as I say, it notes hundreds of cultural sites have been inventoried, uh, and yet only 7% of the total area of Grand Staircase Escalante has yet to be surveyed. Are these, uh, are these unsurveyed sites the ones that will no longer be protected with the uh, Trump Zinke shutdown of about half the monument? Well, yeah, so it's about half the monument. So, you know, huge sections that have not yet been surveyed by archaeologists and paleontologists. And, and that's one of the, the ironies here is that Grand Staircase is very rich in paleontological resources. It's relatively rich in those cultural artifacts in the cultural landscape. But mm -hmm. compared to Bears Ears, Bears Ears is a treasure trove of archaeological and cultural artifacts. And we know that inside Bears Ears, there are tens of thousands of archaeological sites that are in the area that President Obama protected. And again, that, that whole inventory was still in process. You know, mm. Bears Ears was only on the books for, for about a year before President Trump attempted to, to rescind that and shrink it by an even bigger amount. So when you, you extrapolate out from what we know that he was being warned at Grand Staircase, we know he must have been getting similar warnings about Bears Ears, and it's maybe an order of magnitude bigger in terms of the, the risk to the Native American uh, archaeological sites there inside, inside Bears Ears. Now, uh, not redacted, Aaron Weiss, from these documents was information on uh, mineral deposits in these monuments, uh, tar sands, coal, etc. Looking at these documents and the subsequent attempted redactions here, what does this tell us? It seems like it tells a pretty clear story about why the Trump administration is doing what they are doing here with uh, with these attempted uh, reductions, no? It does. We'd always suspected that the outcome was preordained. But this really makes the, makes it crystal clear that the fix was in from the beginning. And mm -hmm. we haven't talked about marine monuments on here, but there are some email exchanges about fishing in the marine national monuments that are even more explicit about getting mm -hmm. rid of statements and facts that undercut their case for trying to reopen the marine monuments, both in the Pacific and the Atlantic, to commercial fishing. And there's there's one amazing exchange where you you see them realize that if they lifted uh, the ban on commercial fishing inside Rose Atoll National Monument in the Pacific, mm -hmm. it wouldn't make a difference because there's a broader ban on large boat fishing in an area larger than Rose Atoll. And it's like you can you can hear the sad trombones going off <laughs> in their heads in this email exchange when they realize what they wanted to do won't actually make a difference because of other protections.
If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies. Owned by the richest dude in the world. That one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think. I promise it does. Does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. The Trump administration today rolled out new rules that would reverse course on a cornerstone of the Obama administration agenda, regulating emissions from coal-burning power plants. Yamiche Alcindor begins our coverage with this report that she filed from coal country in West Virginia. The new rule would give states wide leeway on whether to limit emissions and by how much. That includes allowing older power plants to operate longer. The proposal, called the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, would replace Obama-era regulations. Those rules aggressively push for accelerated closures of older, coal-fired plants by setting national targets by reducing carbon dioxide emissions and encouraging adoption of cleaner energies such as solar and wind power. The rules have never taken effect because of legal challenges from 27 states. In a phone call with reporters this morning, Andrew Wheeler, the acting Environmental Protection Agency administrator, said the new rule would lead to more affordable energy bills for consumers. He also called the efforts from the Obama administration an overreach of EPA's authority. The error of top-down, one-size-fits-all federal mandates is over. We will give states and the private sector the regulatory certainty they need to invest in new technologies and provide clean, affordable, and reliable energy for all Americans. The Trump rule would reduce carbon dioxide emissions by around 1%, compared to no regulation. But that's a big difference from the benefits President Obama cited when he rolled out his plan in 2015. With this clean power plan by 2030, carbon pollution from our power plants will be 32% lower than it was a decade ago. We will reduce premature deaths from power plant emissions by nearly 90%. And thanks to this plan, there will be 90,000 fewer asthma attacks among our children each year. The Obama era rule has always drawn criticism from coal country and communities like this one that have traditionally relied on coal to create jobs and support the local economy. In West Virginia, where President Trump is holding a rally tonight, we talked to voters about today's announcement. There was no jobs with those regulations. I mean, I'm all for the environment, but there's a right way and a wrong way. You don't do a blanket approach to something. Where I live in Mango County, we're in the heart of the billion-dollar coal field, and literally people were moving out of the state of West Virginia because we had no jobs. Democrats attacked the proposal today, and environmental groups quickly condemned today's proposed change. In a statement, the National Resources Defense Council said, Trump's EPA is abandoning any attempt to curb 
the carbon pollution that's driving damaging climate change. This proposal violates the law and cooks the books on science and economics, all to prop up coal power plants that can't compete with cleaner energy. As the Obama-era regulations were, these new rules are expected to be challenged in court. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Yamichelle Sendor in Charleston, West Virginia. For a closer look at these changes and the potential impact, I'm joined by Juliet Eilprin, who covers this closely for The Washington Post. Juliet Eilprin, welcome back to the news hour again. Just to clarify, the regulations the Trump administration is rolling back from the Obama administration had never really taken effect? Right. There had been they had been stayed by the Supreme Court because more than two dozen attorneys general from Republican states in the industry had challenged EPA's authority to impose such sweeping limits beyond the plants themselves. And so as a result, they have not taken effect. What is it about the Obama era regulations that the Trump administration so objects to? So the biggest argument they made against those rules was the idea that they applied not just to the operations of the power plants themselves, but they went beyond the fence line. What that meant is that they said to states, look, we want you to meet these emissions targets. And by doing that, you can encourage energy efficiency. You can promote the development and deployment of natural gas plants and renewable energy projects. And those are all ways that you can reduce carbon emissions. And essentially, the opponents of that rule said, no, that's not what's really allowed under the Clean Air Act. And all you can do is make the existing plants more efficient, which is what this new proposal does. And what about the practical consequences of this? What do we look for? So there are a couple of things. When it comes to greenhouse gas emissions, it will slow the decline of carbon dioxide cuts over time. The Obama rule would have done slightly more, although we do see the power sector getting cleaner over time, in part because of cheaper natural gas and renewable energy. In terms of the public health impacts, that's where you're certainly going to see a difference. Because one thing that the Trump administration is now proposing is that Utilities that want to make their existing coal-fired plants more efficient can make those upgrades without installing the kind of pollution controls on traditional pollutants that normally are required under the Clean Air Act. So that means emissions of soot, those are fine particles, and smog-forming pollutants, including sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides, could potentially increase over time. The Trump EPA estimates that by 2030, there will be an additional, for example, between 470 and 1,400 deaths a year as a result of of an uptick in those traditional pollutants. And how does the Trump administration explain that? How do they defend that decision? So their argument is that this rule is about carbon dioxide and not those other pollutants, and they're, you know, adhering to the law and focusing on greenhouse gas emissions, and that they have other methods of controlling those emissions. So potentially they could, you know, address it in another capacity. What they're, what they're saying is that they want to make these plants more efficient. And by definition, uh, if they're going to do that and not impose an additional regulatory burden on these plants, they wanted to make it easier to do these upgrades. And as a result, they're not, they're changing, um, the kind of current requirements that exist under federal law. Who is happy about this decision, Juliet? So utilities, for the most part, 
say that they're happy about it, that this is that while they still face a number of market pressures and they will be, you know, for example, changing their fuel mix over time, this gives them breathing room if they want to keep some of these older plants in operations. Certainly, you see Republican the for the vast majority of Republicans, both in Congress and on the state level, including many of these attorneys general that I mentioned that had been suing, they are welcoming this. So, so from those two camps, you have a significant amount of support who say that this will give them more flexibility and is something that will help them economically. But clearly the environmental community and others are not happy uh, uh, with this decision. What about court challenges going forward? What do you expect? So we absolutely expect a court challenge from essentially the same groups that were defending the Obama era rule. So that would be environmental groups, as you mentioned, as well as a slew of Democratic attorneys generals. We've already gotten indications that whether it's from California or Massachusetts, they're already preparing a legal challenge, arguing that many of these changes violate the Clean Air Act because the federal government is not is basically delegating too much authority to the states and that it needs needs to be stricter in terms of the emissions reductions it's requiring. Meanwhile, we now have more information on the Trump Environmental Protection Agency's proposal to replace the clean power plan, President Obama's first ever carbon emission standards for U.S. power plants. The Trump scheme is another attempt to bail out the polluting coal industry. So, of course, they're going to call it the affordable clean energy rule. But Conrad Schneider, advocacy director of the nonprofit group Clean Air Task Force, tells the Green News report that the Trump EPA's own data outright states that the Trump plan will actually harm more Americans by increasing air pollution. They admit that the change from the Obama plan to their proposal would result in 1,400 unnecessary premature deaths per year by 2030. So that's thousands and thousands of Americans who would die prematurely under the Trump plan, whose lives would be, have been saved under the Obama plan. Just to be clear, the EPA's mandate is to protect public health. But wait, there's more. Remember how the Trump administration recently proposed weakening vehicle mileage and emission standards? I do. Internal emails show the administration had been warned by its own transportation experts that the rollback would actually increase annual highway deaths. Top officials knew that and proposed it anyway. So they know their new plan for coal plants is going to kill people. They know their new uh, scheme to decrease mileage efficiency standards will kill people. And yet the Trump administration proposes this anyway? Yes, they do. Who exactly do they think the Environmental Protection Agency is supposed to protect? But there is some good news. In just the last few weeks, the federal courts have delivered scathing rebukes to the Trump administration's efforts to roll back environmental protections. We already told you about the federal appeals court ordering the Trump administration to ban all uses of the toxic pesticide chlorpyrifos within 60 days. Then a federal judge in Montana dealt yet another setback to the controversial Keystone XL pipeline from Canada. The judge ordered the Trump State Department to do a new full environmental impact study on the pipeline's revised route, which will further delay construction. 
Then a district court in South Carolina overturned the administration's attempt to delay the Obama-era Waters of the United States rule for failing to follow public comment procedures, also known as the Clean Water Rule. It is now in effect, protecting the drinking water in 26 states. Then the D.C. Court of Appeals ordered the administration to immediately implement Obama's chemical safety rule for chemical facilities that were put in place after the deadly 2013 West Texas fertilizer explosion. The court said the Trump EPA delay, quote, makes a mockery of the statute. And then the D.C. court also rejected the EPA's bid to stall rules governing toxic coal ash waste ponds, agreeing with environmental groups that the Obama-era regulations on coal ash waste do not go far enough to protect drinking water. It's kind of weird that losses for the EPA are now considered a win for the environment and public health, but here we are. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, Rise for Climate, a global day of action on September 8th. The Global Climate Action Summit will take place in San Francisco this September. Mayors, local government officials, businesses, and members of civil society will be in attendance with the goal of showcasing climate action around the world and inspiring deeper commitments from each other and national governments. To ensure those commitments are nothing short of building a 100% renewable energy and fossil-free world, 350.org, its global partners, and individuals like you have planned thousands of rallies and events in cities and towns across the world on September 8th, just ahead of the summit. They are demanding real, meaningful, and just climate action, and every city and local leader has been invited to make a commitment around the summit. 2020 is a threshold for meeting global targets to tackle the climate crisis, but because nations won't act quickly enough, Rise for Climate is demanding that local leaders step up and do everything in their power to make a massive shift at the local level. To find a Rise for Climate event near you, or to organize a rally or event in your community, go to riseforclimate.org. We'll be getting back to the midterms minute in the next episode, but I want to close the segment today by reinforcing the obvious point that we must elect candidates this November who believe in climate science and are committed to a fossil-free future. Go to 350action.org to see the candidates they've endorsed and support those candidates through November. Additionally, the Pacific Standard came up with a list of 14 members of Congress with poor records on climate in battleground districts. We've included the article in the show notes and encourage you to check it out, share it, and do everything you can to make sure those seats get flipped in the midterms. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if rebuilding community while resisting disaster capitalism is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Rise for Climate, a global day of action via social media, so that others in your network can spread the word too. You write 
that uh, what you believe is needed is a cultural transformation more provocatively envisioned as transformation of human nature, which is an indispensable component of the eco-socialist project. Now, a lot of people might think that that kind of changing, that transformation of human nature is impossible, that the idea of it is utopian. And I believe that but I believe that human nature transformed quickly from the 1930s New Deal state that uh, lasted through the war on poverty to the 1980s state of Reaganism that lasts today into neoliberalism, that humans transform relatively quickly and easily through policymaking. So is transforming human nature easier than we think? Is it not as difficult as we imagine to transform human nature and for humans to adapt to the new nature that they live in, to one that is more concerned about our ecological impact on the planet? Is that a lot easier than we think it might be? Well, I I don't like to say that it's easy, because especially at an individual level, it's, it appears kind of daunting. But I, I think what one can say to uh, counter the idea that it's impossible or unrealistic is just to look at actual differences that exist and how they relate to uh, practices that are carried out. One of the areas that I found striking, really as an illustration of this, is the, the approach to uh, uh, imprisonment, to, to punishment of people while they're in prison, as opposed to looking at rehabilitation. And uh, so, so there's a striking uh, contrast between uh, dominant U.S. practices of, of really not only imprisoning people, but punishing them continuously and severely while they're in prison, making it as unpleasant as possible, versus the practice in the Scandinavian countries of, of seeing the, the, the prison experience as, a, as an opportunity to re-educate people. And you, you can look at the difference in the sense of the uh, percentage of people who uh, go back out to commit crimes uh, afterwards. It, there's, there's, there's no comparison. I mean, that, that, uh, it's, it's, it's much, much smaller in those countries than it, than it is in the United States. So uh, that's a kind of uh, illustration in a sense. But uh, I think another kind of uh, point that you can make is in the psychological literature about, about children, the re- rearing of children and so on, and the, the sense in which if, if children are raised in an atmosphere of respect and, and so on, uh, they, they turn out uh, differently from the way they turn out if they're raised in an atmosphere of abuse. I mean, that's something that's pretty commonly recognized. So the, these are different types of human characteristics that are displayed and which are clearly traceable to, uh, to the formative influences on people. So uh, all we're talking about in talking about transforming human nature, we're talking about such differences uh, on a large scale. And if you have a cooperative environment, if you have uh, kind of a, a supportive uh, environment, uh, you will look at other people and treat other people differently from what, uh, from the way you will if you're in a constant sort of rat race against them and everyone, you see everyone as a rival or as a competitor. What does because you're, you've been critical this morning of, uh, and you are in your book, of perpetual expansion of the economy, perpetual growth of the economy. What does eco-socialism offer as an alternative to a culture and politics of perpetual expansion? Aren't expansion and growth the only ways we can not only have a good standard of living, but to also make our standard of living even better? Well, I, I think we have to reconsider what we mean by standard of living. I mean, uh, do you measure standard of living by uh, the amount of, of, of high-tech goods that that, uh, that each of us possesses, or do you measure, uh, I, I prefer the term quality of life to standard of living. Standard of living suggests some quantitative measurement in terms of goods. 
quality of life refers to the actual your health and the, the, the interactions you have with other people, your cultural experiences and so on. And they, uh, and the, the, the total material prerequisites for that uh, are less, especially if you view it as a kind of collective thing rather than as, a, as an individual thing. I, I mentioned the example of transit already, but that, that's one illustration. But uh, the, the, the good life is, is something that involves sociality and the, the social experience of living in a community and of creating things with other people together. That type of thing uh, involves uh, is, is not something that involves tremendous amount of uh, material possessions. And uh, I mean, there have been studies of the connection between happiness and material possessions. And of course, if you're deprived, you can't be happy. But but once you reach a certain point, uh, you know, up to a certain point, there there is a real uh, direct correlation between your material uh, well-being and your happiness. But when you Go, the, when the material benefits go beyond that point, there's no connection at all. The connection disappears, and people you know, with enormous numbers of possessions can be just as uh, mixed up and unhappy and so on, and, and it, it, it doesn't benefit them anymore. So this idea that, that, we, uh, that to live better is to have more and more is, is one of the fundamental things that has to be uh, overcome and, and, and attacked. And, and, and this is not only for the sake of improving the environment, but for its own sake as well, because we'll actually be better off in that sense. We'll be healthier. That, that, that great inequality, this is another point that some of these medical and public health studies have shown that great inequality is uh, harmful to the health, not only of the people who are at the bottom, but even of the people who are, who are at the top. It, it creates tensions, anxiety, and so on, and the fear of, uh, constant fear and projection, which are uh, inimical to a, a, a satisfied kind of life. One last question for you, Victor, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. I was going to ask you if we are on the verge of a revolution and when that revolution might happen, but because you brought up the kind of abrupt things that could lead to a quicker reaction due to climate change, like an ice shelf breaking off and calling it, causing a tsunami, what do you, well, I guess, will that mobilization that you were just talking about, will that mobilization be something that is slow in coming? Or do you think that that mobilization may be as abrupt as climate change will be? Well, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, any revolutionary process uh, taken as a whole involves both gradual components and sudden or rapid components. So, uh, so, so it, in a way, you can say both both are true. But 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 I th I think that uh, when when revolutions come, uh, they are sudden, but they reflect a buildup over a long period of time. And so we're seeing some of these uh, sort of first indicators of a, a readiness for it, and and that's uh, that's what we have to have to go on, and uh, what what it will take to uh, to actually uh, bring about a basic change. That, I mean, it's. Uh, every revolution seems impossible until it actually takes place, and, and, and that's the point. We know that from from past history. Revolutions have taken place. Uh, seemingly, all powerful regimes have been dislodged and have have have, have crumbled. Uh, but 
until they did, they, they seemed all powerful, and 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 that's so that's something we have to keep in mind. We have to keep struggling for what we think is is right and needed, and we may even get some some small improvements along the way. But we recognize that those are not enough. But as we keep on doing this, that helps build up the support we need to form the kind of force that's needed to really drastically change the uh, the, the conditions or or the the allocation of power in the society and, and bring it make it really into a, a, a kind of democratic power which is collectively held by uh, by by the majority of the people through real representative people who actually come from the, the sort of the the background of wanting these uh, radical changes and who will therefore not betray that when they get into in the position of office but that requires an, an organized force and not sort of just individual politicians there may be individual politicians who are uh, sincere and, and committed uh, there'll be limits to what they can do they so they need more of a more of an organized force and so so this uh, yeah this, this this is a combination of gradual and sudden change We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, explaining the Trump administration's plan to gut the Endangered Species Act. Next up was the first of three Green News Report segments, this one focusing on extreme fires in California and how they're being used as an opportunity to weaken protections for endangered species. The David Pakman Show explained the EPA's plan to allow asbestos back into manufacturing. The second Green News Report segment focused on the plan to undo pollution standards to downplay the health benefits to people of not being exposed to pollution. Then the broadcast talked with Aaron Weiss about how we know from Department of Interior documents that the fix was in on the plan to reduce the size of at least two national monuments. The PBS NewsHour went over Trump's plan to roll back Obama's clean energy plan. The final Green News Report segment highlighted the rising death toll from both the rollback of coal emissions and vehicle emission standards. Our activism for today was to inform you of Rise for Climate, a global day of action on September 8th. And finally, we just heard This is Hell talking with Victor Wallace about the framework for an ecological revolution and the possibility of dramatic structural change. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And today, I just have one extra bonus clip I want to play for you. The the conversation about coal mining has been in the back of my mind for a long time. I went on a trip to Canada last last year, and uh, as part of that trip, we were driving through uh, this part of Nova Scotia where the Trans-Canada Highway has been renamed the Miner's Memorial Highway. And I thought back then, that is so much what we need. The, the conversation about coal mining and the future of energy production and what to do with coal miners who are being put out of work for both economic and environmental reasons. This conversation is dramatically missing something. And I heard a clip that sort of makes this point as well. So I just wanted to share because it's a it's a point that I so rarely hear made. I wanted to call in and talk a little bit about coal miners and the way that Democrats are framing this issue. Mm-hmm. So just recently we had a here in Salt Lake, we had a, a screening of a new National Geographic film called From the Ashes. 
that's about the coal mine situation and why they voted for Trump and everything like that. And uh, then they had a panel discussion afterwards. And I'm a bit concerned when I hear this problem framed as, well, the jobs just aren't coming back and all these coal miners need to buck up and they need to, you know, get a new job. I, I, I agree with you completely. And so this is how I see it. I read this great op-ed from someone that was a coal miner his whole life, and he was forced into early retirement. Mm -hmm. And he talked about when he was a child, there were all these billboards around about how the coal miners are the the people that keep the lights on. You know, they keep your dishwasher running. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they put themselves on the line because it's a very dangerous job. Mm-hmm. to do this. Yes. And they're, they're literally putting their lives on the line so that we can have these modern conveniences. And he said that when he was fired early, um, that, you know, all he started hearing about was just about how like he needed to get a new job and buck up and all these things. And he kind of felt slighted for his lifetime of service towards this. And that, that kind of resonates with me a bit. It, it reminds me a bit of, of how uh, veterans from Vietnam were treated when they came home. You know, they went out there and they put their lives on the line and then, you know, people would spit on their faces and stuff when they came home. And I think the way we should be framing this is thank you for the work that you've done. Like, honestly, thank you. You, mm-hmm. you got us through this mm-hmm. period. And now there's economic realities, there's environmental realities and coal needs to wind down but what we're going to do for you is we're going to guarantee your pensions totally. you know make yeah, sure I, that I, you get get these things i could not you know? agree. i could not thing, agree more. shut up and get a job i could not no. agree more i think that that's a hundred percent right so that was a caller calling into the majority report and what that reminded me of you might find it surprising but it reminded me of a clip that I heard while researching today's show that I didn't have time to include in the show, but it was people speaking with Native Americans about their reaction to decreasing the size of the national monuments. And the way they spoke about the land that is part of their cultural heritage, that is part of those monuments that's being protected, but that those protections are being repealed and the dangers of uh, having that land exposed to drilling and mining and how it could literally destroy cultural sites, archaeological sites, etc. It's that sense of connection to place and connection to heritage, which is why coal mining is such an emotional topic. That sense of place and connection to the land is really not that different for coal miners than for those Native Americans. I'm not saying it's the same, but think about it really. Like, how different is it really? Coal miners very often grow up in the same town or neighborhood or region as their parents did and their grandparents did. And if they're in the coal mining industry, they're very likely to follow generationally in that industry because it's the best paying job in hundreds of miles. And if if you have a sense of connection to your community and your land, the idea of just picking up and moving, it should be easy to understand why that is such a painful decision to make and why so many people don't 
make that decision. So they stay where they are, they stay in their community, and coal mining is the only thing in the area that can actually make you financially secure. So if you can understand and empathize with the plight of native peoples who are having their lands encroached upon and put in danger, you really should be able to flip that around and understand the plight of coal miners who are connected to that land and connected to a heritage of coal mining and to have that heritage taken away, even if you think that cultural heritage for native peoples and archaeological sites are of much greater value than coal mining and destructive, polluting fossil fuel extraction, which I would agree with you on, but on a purely person-to-person, human level, emotionally understanding the connection between a person and their location and cultural heritage, I would argue it's really not that much different. And if your instinct is to make arguments that it really is different as a way to buttress your idea that we should not put too much weight or or too much concern on these people's emotional, psychological uh, well-being, I would be careful with that because what happens a lot, arguments coming from the right when it comes to other things that uh, people on the left care about, take workplace harassment, sexual harassment, that sort of thing. People say, hey, what are you complaining about? People in other countries, uh, you know, women are put to death for adultery. So it's clearly not that bad, right? But we know that's a terrible argument. We know that even though there is a kernel of truth in that statement, it is not actually a, a justifiable reason to dismiss one concern for the sake of another. I, w- I would say the same goes for this comparison I'm making between native peoples in their lands and coal miners and their cultural heritage. So it really just comes down to respect. And and that's how Trump was able to get so much support from those communities. He pretended to respect coal communities by lying to them about being able to bring their jobs back. But like with what I was saying about the Canadian highway being named the Miners Memorial Highway and not just some like backwoods two-lane road that no one's ever going to see. It was part of the Trans-Canada Highway, the the biggest uh, highway that stretches all the way across the country. That shows respect. And and from the caller to the majority report saying, what if we showed respect by reframing how we argue about these things and making arguments about how coal mining jobs may have to go away, but we'll guarantee your pensions as a thank you from the country for the work that was done, those sorts of things. So what if the left showed real respect to these communities in exactly the same way that we argue that real respect needs to be paid to Native peoples and their lands and their cultures? I think I'm going to get more into this on the members show. I'm going to play the clips that I've been referencing about the Native peoples talking about the connection to their land. I have some other clips that fall into that category as well. So I'm going to play some extra stuff for members and get deeper into this conversation. So members look forward to that. If you're not a member, of course, you could sign up patreon.com slash best of left. That's it for today. If you have any thoughts on this or anything else, I would love to hear it. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. 
listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size, as I said, at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, by leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog, and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.